What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, what's new with me? This isn't a two-way conversation. Nothing's new with me, and I'm sure if you could talk to me, you'd have something more exciting to say. I still work from home, currently. I still can't get three people to come to my house. Though one is coming on Tuesday, unless he flakes out on me too. Uh, I have kids around all day because of summer break, and they don't leave their bedrooms or change out of their pajamas. So that's only adds to my depression. Um... I, oh, I got my first internet compliment on Instagram. Uh, I had posted chapter 19 of the Iron Heel, and a man named Jake Phillips, 116, said, I checked out your podcast. Love what you're doing, man! Exclamation point. These classics are so awesome when someone that cares dusts them off and brings them to life. And I thought, holy crap, that not only was just a nice, like, oh, I listened and it was fun. Uh, It was well-worded and seemed a little suspicious. I thought, ah, because I've had people message me on there, but they're just trying to sell something. So I thought, ah, crap. My first internet compliment could just be someone trying to further their career. So I said, thank you so much. I really appreciated that. I always loved classics and the idea of a crabby uncle reading them to me. But since that doesn't happen for me in real life, I had to create it for the masses. But thank you so much for letting me know you listened, exclamation point. And figured, well, there you go. I hope it was a real person that actually listened. Uh, and then I went about trying to get my kids to eat. Trying to get them to get out of their beds. Trying to do some work on the computer. And then I got another message saying I do a podcast along the same idea, but usually geared towards essays and short stories. If you'd ever be interested in giving folks a chapter of Jack London or something, let me know. It'd be great to have you on. So not only did I get my first internet compliment, I got an invitation to be on another man's podcast. So I thought this has to be a scam. I looked at Jake Phillips 116, and it turns out he's a host of a podcast called The The Cultured Bumpkin. It's an American literature podcast. So I thought, I'll click this link, and it'll most likely take me to a page that wants to sell me erectile dysfunction pills. And I clicked it, and it's a real podcast. And I listened to an episode of his podcast, and, uh... The first episode is with him interviewing Lisa Kroger, who wrote 
Monster, she wrote, plus Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And that's actually a book I've heard of. I've seen it referenced on Twitter. It's a real thing by a real person. So, I see that, and I think, ah, bullcrap. He didn't interview her. He just interviewed some man pretending to be her uh, for the clicks. But I listened to it, and he interviews her for real, and she talks about her book for real, and it was a good interview. So, I haven't answered him back yet, because I'm terrified. But I'm gonna. Uh, maybe I'll get two extra listeners out of the deal. But in either case, uh, my attempt at dating seems to be working out fine. She told me that she likes me. Uh, and I said, I, I like too. So, I'm a dating man. I've got someone who wonders what I'm doing during the day, which is a weird responsibility to have in my life again. Uh, the only people that ever wonder what I'm doing in my day is my cats, because I'm not home feeding them. But now there's an actual human woman who says hi, and if I don't answer for five hours, wonders, oh, what's, uh, what's that about? Things are really looking up for old Glenn lately. On with the show. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books, for the most part, that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe, and you should, probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you, and maybe your kid in the back seat. And with that, enjoy this episode of Leaves of Glen. I am Glenn Nuzzles. So where did we leave off in the last episode? Uh, it was chapter 20, The Lost Oligarch, in reference to uh, Wixen's kid, who they brainwashed and then released into the world where he died of pneumonia. So that's sad. Uh, there was a a lot of stuff around Avis looking like another woman because his perversion said I want you to look I don't know what uh, like a bar lady or something I don't know what his kink is but she did it and she did it so well that he didn't even recognize her which I find hard to believe like I said in the last episode eh, he you know it's like the Uncanny Valley. You know that there's something there. You know whatever. But no, apparently he, she's perfect at it. She had prosthetics. She took years of acting classes. Uh, Wixon's kid shows up. They don't kill him. And he falls in love with the murderous Anna uh, before dying pneumonia. So, again, another home run of a chapter by Jack London. Uh, I'm thinking after I do finish this book, I should do sort of like a recap of why I had high hopes for it and why those hopes were dashed so horribly against the rocks of bad writing. My Kindle is rebooting. Apparently decided to install new software, so that's annoying. So let's give that a minute. Actually, while we wait for the Kindle to reboot, uh, let's learn about a new book. 
one that's coming out on July 9th. It's only 288 pages, people. It's the Wharton Stretch Book, featuring the breakthrough method of active isolated stretching by Jim Wharton and Phil Wharton. <laughs> and just imagine Jim and Phil sitting around trying out new stretch techniques together and on each other. Uh, eh, let's learn about the book, why don't we? Uh, they previously have written a book called The Wharton's Back Book, and it's got pictures of people stretching out their backs, so apparently they have a long, long line of stretch-related materials that they're writing. About the Wharton's Stretch Book. Introducing Active Isolated Stretching, the revolutionary yet remarkably simple flexibility program featuring 59 stretches for over 55 different sports and everyday activities. Whether you're a serious competitor or a weekend warrior, you know that proper stretching before and after your workout can improve your performance, increase your flexibility, help prevent injury, and make you feel better. But did you know that traditional way of stretching, lock your knees, bounce, hold, hurt, hold longer, actually makes muscles tighter and more prone to injury? The mores in italics. They want you to know that's a problem. There's a new and better way to stretch. Active, isolated stretching. And with the Wharton Stretch Book, the method used successfully by scores of professional, amateur, and Olympic athletes is now available to everyone. This groundbreaking technique developed by researchers, coaches, and trainers, and pioneered by Jim and Phil Wharton, is your new exercise prescription. The routine is simple. First, you prepare to stretch one isolated muscle at a time. Then, you actively contract the muscle opposite, opposite the isolated muscle, which will then relax in preparation for a stretch. You stretch it gently and quickly for no more than two seconds and release it before it goes into its protective contraction. They're actually giving away the secret in the description. Like, you don't need to read the book at this point. Then you repeat. Simple. But the results are outstanding. Wharton's stretch book explains it all. Part one contains the active isolated stretch catalog with fully illustrated, easy to follow stretches for each of five body zones from neck and shoulders to trunk, <laughs> arms and legs. Over 50 stretches at all. Part two offers specific stretching prescriptions for 55 sports and activities from running, tennis, track and aerobics to skiing, skating, and swimming. You'll also find advice on stretching for daily activities such as driving, working at the desk, lifting, and keyboarding. Keyboarding? <laughs> Makes it sound like snowboarding or something, like you're doing really awesome things. Part 3 discusses stretching for life with specific recommendations for expectant mothers and older athletes. It also includes specific stretching exercises that could help you avoid unnecessary surgery. Oh boy, there we go. Does it also cure cancer, these stretches? Give active, isolated stretching a try. For only three weeks, you'll never go back to your old stretching routines again. And with that, my Kindle has updated. Let's get started. Chapter 21. So close to being done, the roaring abysmal beast. During the long period of our stay in the refuge, 
We were kept closely in touch with what was happening in the world without, and we were learning thoroughly the strength of the oligarchy, uh, with which we were at war. Out of the flux of transition, the new institutions were forming more definitely and taking on the appearance and attributes of performance. The oligarchs had succeeded in devastating a governmental machine. As intricate as it was vast, that worked. And this despite all our efforts to claw and hamper. This was a surprise to many of the revolutionists. They had not conceived it possible. Nevertheless, the work of the country went on. The men toiled in the mines and fields. Perforce, they were no more than slaves. As for the vital industries, everything prospered. The members of the great labor castes were contented and worked on merrily. For the first time in their lives, they knew industrial peace. No more were they worried by slack times, strike and lockout, and the union label. They lived in more comfortable homes and in delightful cities of their own. Delightful, compared with the slums and the ghettos in which they had formerly dwelled. They had better food to eat, less hours of labor, more holidays, and a greater amount and variety of interests and pleasures. And for the less fortunate brothers and sisters, the unfavored laborers, the driven people of the abyss, they cared nothing. An age of selfishness was dawning upon mankind. And yet this is not altogether true. The labor castes were honeycombed by our agents, men whose eyes saw beyond the belly need, the radiant figure of liberty and brotherhood. Another great institution that had taken form and was working smoothly was the mercenaries. This body of soldiers had been evolved out of the old regular army and was now a million strong. To say nothing of the colonial forces, the mercenaries constituted a race apart. They dwelt in cities of their own which were practically self-governed, and they were granted many privileges. By them, a large portion of the perplexing surplus had, was consumed. They were losing all touch and sympathy with the rest of the people and, in fact, were developing their own class morality and consciousness. And yet, we had thousands of our agents among them. The oligarchs themselves were going through a remarkable and, it must be confessed, unexpected development. As a class... They disciplined themselves. Every member had his work to do in the world, and this work he was compelled to do. There were no more idle, rich young man, men. <laughs> Their strength was used to give united strength to the oligarchy. They served as leaders of troops and as lieutenants and captains of industry. They found careers in applied science, and many of them became great engineers. They went on into the multitudinous divisions of the government, took service in the colonial professions, and by tens of thousands they went into the various secret services. They were, I may say, apprenticed to education, to art, to the church, to science, to literature, and in those fields they served the important function of molding the thought processes of the nation in the direction of the perpetuity of the oligarchy. They were taught and later, in turn, taught that what they were doing was right. They assimilated the aristocratic idea from the moment they began as children. 
to receive impressions of the world. The aristocratic idea was woven into the making of them until it became bone of them and flesh of them. They looked upon themselves as a wild animal trainers, rulers of beasts. From beneath their feet rose always the subterranean rumbles of revolt, violent death ever stalked in their midst, bomb and knife and bullet were looked upon as so many fangs of the roaring abysmal beast. They must dominate if humanity were to persist. They were the saviors of humanity. They regarded themselves as heroic and sacrificing laborers for the highest good. They, as a class, believed that they alone maintained civilization. It was their belief that if ever they weakened, the great beast would engulf them and everything of beauty and wonder and joy and good in its cavernous and slime-dripping maw. Without them, anarchy would reign, and humanity would drop backward into the primitive night out of which it had so painfully emerged. The horrid picture of anarchy was held always before their child's eyes until they, in turn, obsessed by this cultivated fear, held the picture of anarchy before the eyes of the children that followed them. This was the beast to be stamped upon, and the highest duty of the aristocrat was to stamp upon it. Uh, in short, they alone, by their unremitting toil and sacrifice, stood between the weak humanity and the all-devouring beast. And they believed it, firmly believed it. I cannot lay too great stress upon the high ethical righteousness of the whole oligarch class. This has been the strength of the Iron Heel, and too many of the comrades have been slow or loath to realize it. Many of them have ascribed the strength of the Iron Heel to its system of reward and punishment. This is a mistake. Heaven and hell may be the prime factors of zeal in the religion of a fanatic, but for the great majority of the religious, heaven and hell are incidental. To right and wrong, love of the right, desire for the right, unhappiness with anything less than the right. In short, right conduct is the prime factor of religion. And so, with the oligarchy, prisons, banishment and degradation, honors and palaces and wonder cities are all incremental. The great driving force of the oligarchs is the belief that they are doing right. Never mind the expectations and never mind the oppression and injustice in which the iron heel was conceived. All is granted. The point is uh, that the strength of the oligarchy lies in its satisfied conception of its own righteousness. And for that matter, the strength of the revolution during these frightful 20 years has resided in nothing else than the sense of righteousness. In no other way can be explained our sacrifices and martyrdoms. For no other reason did Rudolf Mendelhall flame out his soul for the cause and sing his wild swan song that last night of life. For no other reason did Hurlbert die under torture, refusing to the last to betray his comrades. For no other reason has Anna Royalston refused blessed motherhood. For no other reason has John Carlson been the faithful and unrewarded custodian of the Glen Ellen Refuge. 
It does not matter, young or old, man or woman, high or low, genius or clod, go where one will among the comrades of the revolution. The motor force will be found to be a great and abiding desire for the right. But I have run away from my narrative, earnest and I well understood before we left the refuge how the strength of the Iron Heel was developing the labor caste, the mercenaries, and the great hordes of secret agents and police of various sorts were all pledged to the oligarchy. In the main, and ignoring the loss of liberty, they were better off than they had been. On the other hand, the great helpless mass of population, the people of the abyss, was sinking into a brutish apathy of content with misery. Whenever strong proletarians asserted their strength in the midst of the mass, they were drawn away from the mass by the oligarchs and given better conditions by being made members of the labor castes or of the mercenaries. Oh, my lord, this is dragging on. This... Discontent was lulled, and the proletariat robbed of its natural leaders. The condition of the people of the abyss was pitiable. Common school education, so far as they were concerned, had ceased. They lived like beasts in great squalid labor ghettos, festering in misery and degradation. All their old liberties were gone. They were labor slaves choice of work was denied them. Likewise was denied them the right to move from place to place or the right to bear or possess arms. They were not land serfs like the farmers. They were machine serfs and labor serfs. When unusual needs arose for them, such as the building of the great highways and airlines, of canals, tunnels, subways, and fortifications, levies were made on the labor ghettos and tens of thousands of serfs, willy-nilly, were transported to the scene of operations. Great armies of them were toiling now at the building of artists housed in wretched barracks where family life cannot exist and where decency is displaced by dull bestiality. Oh, gross. In all truth, there in the labor ghettos, is the roaring abysmal beast the oligarchs fear so dreadfully. But it is the beast of their own making. In it, they will not let the ape and tiger die. And just now the word has gone forth that the new levies are being imposed for the building of Asgard, the projected wonder city that will far exceed artists when the latter is completed. We, of the revolution, will go on with that great work, but it will not be done by the miserable serfs. The walls and towers and shafts of that fair city will arise to the sound of singing, and into its beauty and wonder will be woven, not sighs and groans, but music and laughter. Ernest was madly impatient to be out in the world and doing. For our ill-fated first result that miscarried in the Chicago commune was ripening fast. Yet he possessed his soul with patience, and during the time of his torment, when Hadley, who had been brought for the purpose from Illinois, had made him over into another man, he revolted great 
revolted great planes in his head for the organization of the learned proletariat. All right, whatever. This is just turning into mumble jumble now at this point. And for the maintenance of at least the rudiments of education among the people of the abyss, all this, of course, in the event of the first revolt being a failure. It was not until January 1917 that we left the refuge. All had been arranged. We took our place at once as uh, agent provocateurs in the scheme of the Iron Heel. I was supposed to be Ernest's sister by oligarchs and comrades on the inside who were high in authority. Place had been made for us. We were in possession of all necessary documents and our pasts were accounted for. With help on the inside, this was not difficult, for in the shadow world of Secret Service identity was nebulous. Like ghosts, the agents came and went, obeying commands, fulfilling duties, following clues, C-L-E-W-S, making their reports often to officers who never saw or were cooperating with other agents they had never seen before and would never see again. And, uh... That was chapter 21. Kind of a non-chapter. <laughs> so what did we learn here today? Uh, almost nothing. Basically, the chapter was dedicated to complaining about how people, uh, after the failed revolution, were complacent and fat with their ripened bellies. Uh... People are jerks. Proletariats are being oppressed. Pretty much nothing's changed since chapter one. Uh, so there you go. That's pretty much it. I have nothing else to add. <laughs> so maybe tomorrow, chapter 22 of the Chicago Commune that we've heard so much about. Apparently they've dedicated a chapter to it. Until then... Thank you for listening.